This is Inside the Writer's Head with Jessica Strasser, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2019 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here now is Jessica Strasser. Hey everyone, I'm Jessica Strauser, the 2019 Writer-in-Residence for the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County, and this is my first episode as host of Inside the Writer's Head. I've actually been a guest on this podcast twice, once when Kurt Dynan was Writer-in-Residence a couple years back, and then again just last month with my lovely predecessor, Emma Carson Byrne, but it's a surreal privilege to be sitting here in the host seat. I'm looking forward to a great year ahead of talking with other writers I so admire, answering your questions, and chatting about anything else that comes our way. So let's get started. I have Jess Montgomery with me in the studio today at the main library downtown. Jess is the author of The Widows, a brand new historical mystery from Minotaur Books set in the 1920s in which two women work together to solve a tragic murder and save their community. The novel was inspired by Ohio's true first female sheriff in 1925, which we're going to talk more about in just a moment, and is set in the Appalachian foothills of Ohio, weaving together coal mining, workers' rights, women's rights, prohibition, and other issues of the 1920s that still resonate today. Early chapters of the novel earned Jess an Ohio Arts Council Individual Artist Award and the John E. Nance Writer-in-Residence at Thurber House in Columbus. An AP Wire review of The Widows stated, Beautifully plotted and filled with believable characters, The Widows explores an era and an area struggling to be a part of the modern 20th century, yet constantly pulled backward to its unsettled past. Jess Montgomery draws on actual historical incidents that richly explore the people behind events in the launch of this series that shows much potential. Having read and wholeheartedly endorsed the novel myself, I agree. Under her given name, Sharon Short, Jess also writes the Literary Life column for the Dayton Daily News, and I am proud to call her a friend in writing. We've sat on the faculty of a handful of writing workshops together and gotten to know each other socially, and I've found her an enormously inspiring and talented soul who I'm grateful to have in my circle. I'm also hoping she is especially forgiving of first-time podcast hosts. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head, Jess. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So I want to start right away with the real-life inspiration behind The Widows because it's just so fascinating as a starting point. Maud Collins was Ohio's first female sheriff back in 1925. Can you tell us a little bit about Maud's story and where and how she came to be sheriff and what about her grabbed you? Sure. Um, she became sheriff, uh, like as you said, in 1925 in Vinton County. Um, she was the jail uh, matron for her husband, who was the sheriff, Fletcher Collins. Um, so she was very familiar with um, the rule of law in that time and that place. And, um, and he, how big? And this is a tiny jail. I'm assuming. Oh yes, yeah, just a couple cells uh, right attached to or right behind the um, sheriff's house, which now um, is used as a police station in MacArthur. Um, MacArthur is the county seat of Vinton County. So he was actually um, trying to serve um, a warrant and stopped somebody, you know, to serve them a warrant and was shot to death. 
And so there was no mystery at all about how he died. Um, I believe she was, some reports say she was a witness to her husband's murder and then had to um, testify in court, which I can't even imagine the trauma of such a thing. Um, they had five kids, and yeah, five kids. And she was losing her home then because yes, she lived she was in the sheriff's home. home. Absolutely. She was packing, packing up her house and her kids to move back to West Virginia to be with her parents. When the story goes, the county commissioner showed up and said, where are you going, Maude? We want you to serve as sheriff. So she served out her husband's term. Then even more remarkable than her being sheriff in 1925 is she decided to run in her own right in 1926 and won by a landslide. I mean, how unusual <laughs> was that at the time? Uh, extremely unusual. I tried to dig and find um, if there were any... There were pl women who worked for police departments in big cities before this. But um, I tried to find, was there anyone who preceded her? And I ran across one brief mention of a woman in Texas in 1924. Oh, my so gosh. By one year, <laughs> who uh, her, hus her husband actually died of a heart attack. So she filled out the term, and then she So she done. came to it the same way. Yeah, came to it the same way. But Maude went on to have a full career in law enforcement. Wow. So in she was the aspect. first in Ohio, but she was one of the first in the entire country. Yeah, probably maybe the second. Maybe the second. Yeah. Wow, that is amazing. And the next sheriff in Ohio, by the way, was, this is why Vinton County realized, oh, we have something special here. They, you know, they just loved the Collinses and didn't, I don't think, really thought anything of it until another county decided to try to enter their female sheriff into the Women's Hall of Fame and claimed she was the first in 1976. <gasps> 51 years later. Oh my goodness. Isn't that something? That is something. So your female sheriff character in The Widows, mm -hmm. Lily Ross, she's pretty substantially reimagined. And was that because, I know you said there really was no mystery to start out with, was it mostly because the story you had in mind required it or because um, not much is known about Maude's work as sheriff or a little of both? It was a little of both. I didn't want to write a biography of Maude. I'm a fiction writer. Um, and, yeah, the tragedy in Maude's life was there was no mystery around it. Um, and I wanted to write a mystery. So, yeah, Lily is about eight years younger. She has two kids because I couldn't handle five even in writing. <laughs> <laughs> What's more in real life? Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I changed that up. And, of course, the motivation is entirely from my imagination. has nothing to do with the real-life Collinses. Mm-hmm. Tell us about um, some of the most interesting paths you took in researching the widows. Do we want literal paths or, Ooh, <laughs> figurative, or figurative paths? paths? Could you talk a little bit about both? Sure. Uh, figurative path, it took me a while to find the structure for the novel and the voices for the novel. So originally I started out um, with writing just from Lily's point of view, and it felt really kind of sodden. It was just a lump of clay that I needed <laughs> to work with. And then I thought, okay, what if I write some scenes from the, the murderer's point of view? Because that, that often happens in thriller books. Mm -hmm. Did not work for me at all. Came off even to me. And it, I got maybe five pages in and thought, this is a cliche for me. I couldn't find a fresh way to do it. Um, and then I decided I would try to write from Daniel's point of view. That's the, sh the husband in The Widows, um, as if he's um, his life is flashing before his eyes, 
also mm-hmm. a cliche. <laughs> and I wrote 90 pages in this mode, even though it was a cliche. But the process, and I threw them all out. But the process of doing that was wonderful because I um, got to know him really well. Mm-hmm. And he lives on in each page in The Widows. He's very much a presence. And I don't think that would have been the case if I hadn't done all that work. And the other thing that happened was um, in trying to figure out who's this character, I realized, well, he... I gave him a friend, um, a childhood friend, female, named Marvina. Um, This is not a love triangle at all, but he remains friends with her um, throughout his life, and Lily doesn't know this. Mm -hmm. So Marvina started out as a secondary character and then quickly became a main character in her own right. So this novel is told from alternating points of view between Lily and Marvina, and the two women have to work together to figure out what happens. They couldn't either one on their own solve the murder or save the community, but they could together. And we're not really sure whether it is a love triangle. Lily wonders that. Lily wonders that, yeah. Yeah, because even, you know, the physical aside, you know, he had this friend and this this important person that was part of his childhood that he didn't tell her about. Right. And that feels like a betrayal. And it is, kind of. It's an emotional betrayal. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then literally, <laughs> I know you, literally, yes. I, I do happen to remember a story of you getting a little bit lo- turned around. Oh yes. I get in lost. nature. Uh, yeah. I get lost <laughs> researching so easily. It's <laughs> so sad. Uh, but yeah, I, I took several trips over to the Southeastern portion of Ohio. Um, to, you know, my family of origins from Appalachia in, uh, Eastern Kentucky, but I wanted to really understand that portion of Appalachia, so and where my novel is set in southeastern Ohio. So I spent a lot of time over there, and um, there's a, a micro region that was called um, Little Cities of Black Diamonds. So it's 80 little coal mining towns. Um, now, there aren't that many now, of course, but at the time there were. And so I kind of bebopped through some of the towns, and uh, in one particular town, I saw a um, old hut that had been turned into a coal mining museum but it was closed and it said on the side call for appointment and I had no cell phone signal so I waited till I was back at the lodge where I was staying and I dialed the number but missed the last digit by one and I kid you not happened to call a gentleman who ran the competing coal mining museum on the (laughs) other side of town (laughs) what dueling coal mining museums and uh, went back and spent a lot of time at, at the, the other coal mining museum, which is in the old um, the depot of that small town. Because you really had to understand coal mining to mm-hmm. paint sort of what the culture was like at this moment in this town. Yes, so I, that is probably the most, I mean, it's all heavily, sometimes too heavily researched, but I spent a lot of time trying to make sure I got coal mining just right because my family were tobacco farmers and factory workers, uh, just a couple of coal miners. Um, And I I wanted to honor that work by getting it right as best I could. Absolutely. Was there a favorite moment, just a favorite little gem that you stumbled on at any point in your research, even if it wasn't something that that made it into the book? Um, It did actually make it into the book. It was in meeting with the gentleman who ran the, the... uh, coal mining museum standing outside the you one know, you accidentally the, called yeah the one I accidentally <laughs> called so we're standing outside it's a cold rainy day 
Um, I'm thinking, can we please go inside the train depot, <laughs> the old train depot, which is the coal mining museum. Um, and I realized he was trying to figure out, are you taking us seriously? You know, you're not from here. Are you? Ta-? And I understand that, for, mm-hmm. you know, with family from Appalachia. I, I get that very much. So I spent some time chatting with him. And then he finally got this little twinkle in his eye. And he said, well, it's cold out. We can go inside the museum. But I'd have to light a coal-fired stove to heat it up. Are you okay with that? And I said, are you kidding me? Of course I'm okay with that. Will you show me how you do it? Will you? And so we became buddies in that instant. <laughs> And yeah, and went inside, and then he called his friend over, and they reminisced and showed me an old WPA uh, from the 1930s film, which did not make it into the book, obviously, because it's set in 1925. But it was really just something to set with these two men and watch this film, this silent WPA film of the town, and um, it, you know, warm our feet by the coal-fired stove, and have you know one of them say, "Oh, that's Uncle Bob," or "Oh, I remember him. He was my school teacher." and start to like talk to each other and mm-hmm. share memories so more when you can kind of fade into the background yes. and get yes. sort of that authentic piece absolutely I can imagine what that would mean to you personally too I, I think um my grandfather was a steel mill worker in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. uh I come from a line of immigrants who came and lived in the row houses owned by the mill and mm-hmm. you know my grandmother would hang out her laundry and if the wind shifted it would all be black when she took it down off the lines and so there is something I really admire the way you tried to you know honor that way of life that does still exist but not the same way that it did and not as prevalently as it did so I would say how long were you working on this book? Hmm. It seems uh, like forever doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Goodness Uh, I I got the idea a year before I started working on it I got the idea and I thought oh I don't know I don't think I don't think I can pull this off so I kind of shoved it to the back of my head and then um, my agent said you know this is a good idea you should pursue this so I spent um, probably a couple years um, writing the first draft and then uh, another year revising uh, before it went out so a good three years four if you count the year I didn't do anything except have it at the back of my mind. I think about it, which is an important time. It is. We writers know. Um, and this is actually the first in a series. Yeah, You've already been contracted to write. The second one, The second yeah. book. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about it? Will that be featuring um, both of the same point of view characters from this story or just one of them? Yes, I can tell you about it. Um, it's called The Hollows, and it's set... Um, in fall of 1926, so it's about a year and a half after the widow's ends, uh, and Lily has come to realize she really wants to be sheriff in her own right, and so she's running for election. She is not going to win by a landslide like the real-life Maud. <laughs> I'm, not making it, I'm not making it that easy on her. This is fiction. You have to torture your characters. Um, but she, Lily, and I have no idea how Maud in real life felt, but Lily, in my imagination, because I think this is how I would feel, she feels um, torn. She's really realized that she loves this job. It's her calling. It's her passion. But she wouldn't be able to do it if her husband hadn't died. So think about the guilt that would, you know, infuse you with. And, of course, mm-hmm. she's got two young kids. And it's 1926. People didn't go in, you know, small coal mining towns, areas, didn't pop off to the, you know, psychologist to talk this over. 
Right, right. So she's pressing a lot down. Um, and a body is found um, near the moon. It's in real life, it's the Moonville Tunnel. Irene. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's haunted, isn't it? That's, it's rumored to be. It's haunted. rumored to be. I have, I have, I made it there and um, took a hike down the, through the tunnel. It's spooky, but I didn't feel any like spirits or anything. So I went to school in Athens at Mm -hmm. Ohio University, Mm -hmm. and I remember that was one of the tales that would come up every Halloween. Wasn't it a coal miner? A coal miner's lantern that you could supposedly see? Yes, and there's a a female ghost, and so the the train... Sorry, I'm getting you way off track. Yeah, off track. (laughs) 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 Really? Off track? Yeah, so this little village... um, a man just owned that land, and a railroad company in the 1880s, 1890s contacted him and said, you know, we want to bring our train through. Can we buy your land? And he said, no, but I'll lease you the rights. Smart man. Uh-huh. Um, so they built a track through, and that's the only reason the village ever existed. And the only way to get to it was by footpath or the train track. You can't drive there. And that village was still in existence, like, late 60s, early 70s, the last residents finally left. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is very cool. Um, so yeah, so there's a, so it's remote, even in 1926, a body is found by the train track near there. It's been hit by the train. The body has fallen, the person has fallen off the um, top of the tunnel into the oncoming train, and Lily's job is to get herself there and um, try to find out what happened. But nobody knows who this elderly woman that's been killed is. And so Lily gets some pressure of, eh, it's probably just some old woman who wandered from, you know, even a more remote part. Let it go. Cause of death, unknown. That would be the easy way out. But to her, why should she be sheriff if that, you know, she has to care about everybody or, or nobody matters. Right. So she investigates and is told from the point of view of Lily and her best friend, Hildy, actually. Marvina's in the story. Now okay. it's alternating between those two. Hildy's in the first story, so you learn more about Hildy, and then I have some other interstitials of letters and articles and whatnot woven throughout, so it's really kind of three points of view. And the makings of a political campaign Mm -hmm. in that era, the 1920s. Yeah. Very cool. And is there a publication date for this yet? No. Sometime in 2020. Sometime in 2020. (laughs) And is it the hollows or the hollers? Hollers is just the way people pronounce hollows, right? right. So I'm calling it the hollows because it rhymes with the widows, and that's the official name of the of the town um, in my book, uh, and also in real life, it was the Moonville Tunnel. Um, so, and if you drive, as you know, if you drive around down there, there are all these roads named like Stainhart Hollow, and uh-huh. yeah, I mean they would pronounce it holler, but the word's hollow, so. So, so it's I, the hollows. Yeah, it's the hollows. Although but I use both words. But if you call words. it the hollers, Sharon just might bake you a pie. That's right. <laughs> She'll know you're good people. That's right. Um, we've reached a wonderful moment in literature and film and just pop culture, I guess, where people are really finally embracing these stories of strong women making their mark on the world, whether historical mm-hmm. or contemporary. What does it mean to you to be a part of this long overdue movement mm. with this series? Um, it means a lot. I'm, I'm thrilled by it. I have two adult daughters myself. Um, they, the older one works in a male-dominated um, position, and 
she still gets, even in 2019, some pushback uh, for, for that. Um, but we have made progress, but I think it's important to keep telling these stories and of women working together. And that's one of the things I focus on in my book is it's women working together to solve a problem and to help their community. It's not women competing with each other. It's, you know, this. it's not women fighting over a man. It's women working together, as women always have and do. Um, and I think there are a lot of these hidden stories that it's great to see them finally kind of come out into the light of day. And be embraced. Yes. Yeah, as kind of be a embraced. part of it. And really, because it, it, it almost seems trendy now. <laughs> <laughs> and you hit it at the right time because you've been working on this book for years. I have, yeah. So you were very on trend four years ago. Oh, I love that. I'm on trend. Look exactly. Me. Look at me. <laughs> or my agent was who told me, Sharon, <laughs> Jess, <laughs> whoever you are today. <laughs> That's the perils of a pen name. Exactly. It's fun, though. I like it. So it should be easy for me to remember since you yeah. named yourself after me. I did. No, right. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if, if writers listening to this are interested in pursuing historical fiction, mm-hmm. Um, you know, just because I'm asking you because I don't believe that a historical novelist has been on this program in oh. recent memory. Okay. Um, what is your advice for finding your way into the genre and crafting those kind of stories that still have that authenticity that resonates with readers today? Well, as with any genre, read, 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 and in this genre, whether read it's the widows, read first, the widows, um, and then read other historical read, read fiction. Read Anne, Anne Weisgarber. Read there are so many wonderful. Actually, there's a group called the Historical Novel Society. Join that, or at least go look at their website and find what's being published um, for historical fiction. Would be number one. The second thing is um, the way I like to research it is I, I start very broad. Like, what are the issues of the twenties? In, in the world, narrow it down to our country, to the state, to the you know, because I like to connect um, issues in a, a micro region to the larger picture. So whatever era you're working in, I think understand that era in context, mm-hmm. um, and then pick and choose the details that you feel you must use to bring the story to life. Um, because I threw out a lot of details. Sure, years <laughs> of research. And- yeah, yeah. Um, Even the 90 pages that you wrote from, you know, your murdered character's point of view. But as Mm -hmm. you said, when you were discussing that, nothing is wasted. No effort is ever wasted. And then it's important to to try to make that decision about how you're going to connect this uh, historical story to a contemporary audience. The first thing to do is to recognize we're all human, whatever era we live in, and find those points of connection. Um, And sometimes, you know, you do have to kind of edit out things that are just going to be so um, foreign that it will throw a modern reader out. But at the same time, you know, I can't insert LOL into the middle of right. you know, my story set in 1926. So you have to find uh, both directions. So, okay, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, anyone who heard the last episode when I was Emma's guest might remember that Emma and I answered some questions that some of you um, writers of Cincinnati uh, submitted at one of the last workshops Emma did as writer in residence. 
And I inherited, when I stepped into this position, a mailbag, envelopes and envelopes full of questions um, submitted by listeners and by readers and by writers in the area. And I thought it would be fun at the end of every episode to have uh, my esteemed guests answer a question or two so that all of you can get some insights and some advice this year, not just from me, um, but from some of the other uh, accomplished authors who are kind enough to lend their time and come in for the program. So I have here the mailbag, and I'm just going to have <laughs> Jess pick out, a, we'll, we'll see if we have time for two questions, or if we only get to one, that's okay, and do her best at answering the question, and I'll chime in if I'm able, all and right. maybe we'll tackle let it me, together. Let me, let me reach in and grab one at random. Okay, got one. Let me open it up and read it. All right, the question is, uh, what is the best way to edit your first draft? Well, that's an on-point question because I talked about how I um, wrote a lot of pieces of first draft that I um, set aside. So I would say, and and I have kind of a loop-de-loop way of writing. I'll write and write and write, you know, like 40 pages into the first draft, and then I'll loop back 20 and realize, oh, I need to do some revision, and then I'll leap ahead another 60 and then loop back. So um, you just have to find what is your way of creating that first draft. Are you going to do it all the way through, which is perfectly fine, whatever works, or are you going to do this loop-de-loop method, also perfectly fine? By the time you get to the end of your first draft, it's not really a first draft anymore. Right. It's more of a a one-and-a-half draft (laughs) (laughs) in spots. Um, I would also... I also... Well, it's asking how to edit, not how to write a first draft. So once you've completed what you consider a first draft, pat yourself on the back, take a couple days or a week off, not too long because you don't want it to go cold, but celebrate that. That's a big deal Yeah. to finish a first draft. And get some fresh eyes, get a little perspective, mm-hmm. get a, a little, little distance from it. Um, if you have some trusted readers, um, you might want to wait until the second draft to get feedback, but you know, maybe try it out. Um, and then... I would go through, I like to go through and see, um, is this serving the story structure? Um, and be willing to delete things that you really love. I put them in a um, file I called Cuttings, and it's interesting, maybe once or twice I've gone back into a file called Cuttings and pulled out one yeah. I've cut, but almost all of it. I do the same. I have what mine is called scraps. Yeah. Well, it's what kind of <laughs> what it is. You, can't, yeah. you don't want to throw it away. You mm-hmm. can't bear to throw it away. But it is amazing how rarely, maybe one day I'll just stop using it. Because it is amazing how rarely you end up going back. It's, it, that you. is true. So I, I like to start, as with research, start wide and then narrow down. So then my next round of editing through, um, I'm, I'm looking at specific you know, does this flow? Um, does it work well? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I hope that helps. I think um, the one thing that I would add, if your first draft, if your first draft tends to be messier than what what Jess's probably is from her loop de loop <laughs> technique, um, because mine mine sometimes are. I actually like to revise a chapter after I've written it before I move forward, and sometimes go back, but. But very often I reach the end knowing that certain chapters are still really messy or I already know of a whole thread 
I have to fix, and mm -hmm. I'm bad with timelines, which is probably why it's a good thing I'm not a historical novelist, because <laughs> I'll realize, you know, halfway through the story, I'm like, how much time is passing in this oh, story? Oh, I keep you a know? spreadsheet. Like, I'll have a character who's about to say, well, it's been a month, and I think, like, has it been a month? I don't know. <laughs> so I always have to go back, and That's I have a funny. lot of fixing to do. But so if your first draft tends to be messier like mine, I would say don't get bogged down in all the little details. Pick some larger more developmental things, whether they're related to structure, as Jess said, or if there's a subplot that you already know needs to be tightened or some holes that you already know need to be filled, pull out those big things first. Don't overwhelm yourself with, you know, don't make a laundry list of the 35 <laughs> things you know you need to go through and fix because that's just going to make it this miserable slog. Yeah, and, to, to and who are we kidding? We're going through it more than one more time. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yes, you know, yes. take a pass through. I don't think you need to fix just one thing at a time necessarily, but pick a few bigger overarching things. I would go through and correct those first, and then you can get more and more minor as each draft gets cleaner Absolutely. and cleaner but you don't want to be caught up in line editing yourself on your second draft no. because you could you could be fixing stuff that you could be fixing chapters that you're going to completely gonna rewrite throw away, or throw yeah. away or yeah. cut you want to get the structure exactly. the characters the motivation the action down and then go from there yes i always reach that point where i'm uh just about ready to turn in a book to my editor but i <laughs> but i just feel like oh maybe i should just tweak one, one more, more time, thing yes. and that's when <laughs> my agent will kind of reach in and say hey hey jess you you're touching up the paint and your editor mm. might want to help you really get under the hood there ah, and that's true that's too good i think advice. so don't touch up the paint when you haven't worked when you under haven't the built the yet. walls exactly <laughs> we're mixing metaphors here <laughs> We are. Uh, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Wish you so much success on The Widows and the sequel, which we can't wait for next year. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming. And thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. You can meet Jessica at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writerinresidence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you for listening.